civics, y'all. A political conversation for all of us. Jody, oh my God. So we got listener feedback. Somebody actually like took up the call for the homework. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what was your response um, when I sent, like, when you first saw that we had listener feedback? Like, were you as excited as I was? Like, I almost didn't even care what they said. <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought <laughs> like, it was I cool. Was just like, you know, because, I mean, we're doing this. We're talking into a computer, basically. You know, we don't know if anyone is out there actually listening or cares or whatever, you know. So it's, mm-hmm. it's good to have somebody give some sort of a response to what we're saying, indicating that they are actually listening, taking in what we say, and even, uh, you know, arguing against us in in some cases. (laughs) Our reader prefers to remain anonymous and says um, that first, we should own the fact that it's a discussion about politics, not civics, and the perspectives are mostly left of center. Do not try to present it as a balanced discussion since it's clearly not. I think I remember Jody mentioned in an early episode that he was somewhat reluctantly presenting a more right slash conservative perspective because among a very left-leaning group, his views were the closest to center. I went into the, the first episode expecting more of a civic slash government discussion, but it really has turned out to be more of a discussion of politics with really only one side being represented. I think that listeners with similar expectations to mine may quickly tune out if they do not hear a bit of their own perspective being represented. It's a very left-leaning dialogue, and I lean strongly to the right, but I happen to enjoy hearing and even learning from the other side. So a person after your own heart. Oh, yeah, without question. Um, And I, I would agree with the listener in the sense that um, if I were seeking out a podcast and it said civics, I would expect it to be more civic and government. <laughs> and it would kind of piss me off that <laughs> we, we weren't talking more about politics. But for us, I think it's been hard to balance between the civics and the politics because the two are interconnected. They are interrelated. So it's hard mm-hmm. for us to walk that fine line, especially when we get into you know some type of argument or go off on a tangent. It's usually political in nature. So um, I, I agree with the listener completely, and it's something that we're, we're still trying to figure out ourselves. Right, um, and that's what I said when we responded to them. I said, I think we're all hoping to get back to more civics-oriented topics after the election while still covering current events because it's been a hard balance to strike. Where, where I disagree with the, with the listener, I don't think that we're trying to present ourselves as balanced at all. We are left-leaning, and I think we say that throughout the the episodes. We're, we're definitely left-leaning. I try to be balanced, but I do have liberal ideologies. Um, I try to understand what the other side is saying, but I'm not right-wing, so I'm not going to be able to present a full, you know, right-wing perspective. I, I can only do what I can do. <laughs> you know, I can only right. try from my understanding of, of what I think they are trying to say, you know, which to me is it's important. I mean, maybe we should have more right wing people on the show so -hmm. that they can present their own ideas and their own arguments. Um, We never sat down like at the beginning of this and said, all right, you be the left wing person and and I'll be the right wing person. You know, it was nothing like that. It was just, you know, I like balance. It's uncomfortable for me to hear one set of ideas being presented, especially if they're being presented as if it's fact um, Mm -hmm. versus just an opinion. And so then I feel the need to balance, you know, 
me basically you're trying to balance me (laughs) (laughs) we definitely should have more right-leaning people on the show and we've been open to that but we haven't necessarily been proactive about seeking those opinions out and um and that's kind of on me at this point and and i do look forward to and we did invite this listener to come on the show and they gave us permission to share the email communication and we would definitely invite more feedback from you know and if anybody who's listening wants to come on the show and kind of like present their side or more right-leaning uh, positions, we would we would definitely welcome that. But however, we are in the middle of a, of a very right-leaning state, like we're in a very red state. And so it's, I hope it's interesting to share such lefty liberal positions, because I think that would surprise a lot of people that don't live in Louisiana or don't live in New Orleans to know that there are, you know, such staunch liberals um, in such a right, a red state, you know. Well, we are in an urban center, which usually tends to lean left. Hello, Tanya. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. It's it's been quite a while since like we've caught up and since I moved from Baton Rouge. But I've been keeping an eye on you, like on Facebook. That's the great thing that Facebook's um, good for, I think. And I'm going to give you a sec to introduce yourself, but you've been doing some pretty amazing things from from my vantage. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, my name's Tanya Nyman. I was uh, born and raised in New Orleans. I spent a few years in the D.C. area for grad school. Got a creative writing degree at George Mason University, but moved back to Louisiana in 99 to take a teaching position at LSU. And so I was an instructor in the Department of English for 10 years, resigned from there in 2010, I got heavily involved in advocacy in 2012, and I've been primarily doing that for the past eight years, uh, and living in Baton Rouge since 2002. Yeah, and so where we kind of intersect and overlap, well, we were always just kind of around each other because of LSU when I was a student there and a grad student there. But then I later did a, um, as we were chatting about a little while ago, I did a book review for 225 Magazine, the Baton Rouge Glossy Magazine, about the um, Dictionary of, uh, of Acadian, Louisiana and Acadian French. And at the time I was assigned it, it was a really cool assignment, but I was like, how does one review a dictionary? And then kind of found that there was a sort of deeper story underneath it and interviewed, um, I believe you and Sharon Andrews, who is a teacher of mine at LSU that I've remained friends with for a long time. And there just ended up being a lot going on there. I'm curious, when you say advocacy, what is advocacy? What does that look like for you the last 10 or so years? Well, so I taught for 10 years. And in 2010, during that time, I had two kids. And by 2010, it was, I did the advocacy for a short while. But I ended up resigning. And I had this vague notion of, you know, uh, well, I had a creative writing degree. And I was going to write the great American novel kind of thing. But in 2012, there was the effort to create the Breakaway School District. And I don't know, you know, how much you know about that. But that started in 2012 with the, the Southeast Community School District. It's what's morphed into the attempt to create a new city in East Baton Rouge Parish, which is now everybody knows as St. George. It's kind of like school district gerrymandering. If I remember correctly. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they break off. It's, it's yeah. I mean, they're drawing new lines. It's some people call it like the balkanization of the school systems. There was, I think, a long article in uh, The Nation or The Atlantic, forget me, about, about how it's been done in Alabama. 
where larger, predominantly white areas will carve out a school system from the um, larger uh, area, which will have a large minority population. And so that started in 2012. There was a small group of people who attempted to create a breakaway school system. And I remember at that moment, well, my first thought was, I thought we were past this. When we decided to, to stay in Baton Rouge, we, had, we could have moved back to New Orleans in 2011. And I already had looked at what had happened to the schools there um, with Katrina Mm -hmm. and the privatization efforts that was going on. I recognized immediately that if we move back to New Orleans, that there was no longer an opportunity to help create a school system that would benefit the community as a whole, right? They'd already fractured it so much that the only thing you could do was try to do for your own kid's school and only your kid's school. And that didn't really appeal to me. And in Baton Rouge at that point, the school system had problems, but it was actually really improving. And there was certainly signs of a lot of community support for public education. And I had just assumed that it was going to continue to get better, right? You know, the, the way in which we assume it was the, the moral arc is long and bends towards justice. You know, we have this assumption that progress, we forget that, you know, there's times when we backpedal. <laughs> so I, my first impulse was to think, I thought we were past this. And then I was sort of along the lines of fine, take your toys and go home because we have this great school system and you're missing out. And then I became aware I was educated about the way in which the attempts to create that breakaway school district was going to harm the existing school system, right? It was going to leave them with debt. It mm-hmm. was going to threaten that they that our school system would be taken over and privatized immediately because of the way the school accountability system works. And I remember if, thinking that if I didn't go down there and do something, then who would? Who could I expect to go down and try to work on this? My first effort was just that they were trying to pass a bill to make creating breakaway school districts easier so that there would be less public input. And I was like, well, at the very least, I can go down there and testify against that and know that I did what I could. And then I just got heavily involved. And and I thought it would be a one session stint. You know, every time I thought it was like, okay, it's one visit to a committee meeting. Then it was going to be, you know, all right, well, it's going to be this one um, petition I'm going to write and organize. And then it was going to be, okay, it's one legislative session. And then it's, it just, every year there was something new to do. And that's how I've stayed involved. Fast forward all these years later (laughs) and having run for um, school board in 2018, you are now running for, um, it's not council district like it is in New Orleans. It's um, Metro Council District 12 seat. Yeah, it's like the city council in New Orleans, which is a little bit different and which I didn't even realize until I moved to Baton Rouge. You know, in New Orleans, the the city lines are pretty much contiguous with the parish lines, right? You have Orleans Parish, you have the city of New Orleans. They're one and the same. But in most parishes in Louisiana, you actually have a parish and then you have municipalities within that parish. Mm-hmm. And so in East Baton Rouge Parish, we have the city of Zachary, the city of Baker, and as of, I think, 2007, the city of Central. And we also have the city of Baton Rouge. But what is very interesting is the way in which they have organized our government. So there's a, con- a consolidated government. Instead of there being a separate city and parish government, it's been consolidated in a very peculiar way. Um, and that, in fact, demonstrates the way in which this very tedious and boring kind of public policy 
can be used to disenfranchise voters. Mm-hmm. And that was introduced to me. I began to learn about that because of their attempts to create the city of St. George, which came out of the school system. So I ended up researching the plan of government for the consolidated government here in, in East Baton Rouge Parish and, and how that came about and then began to understand how those policies were changed in the late 80s and early 90s, which then allowed for even the opportunity for them to propose the, the city of St. George and how we move forward. How are we going to move forward to address the inequity that was created by that and how to prevent an exacerbation of that inequity? That's where I am at the moment. I'm sorry. I told you there's lots of rabbit holes. <laughs> I can completely identify with like all these rabbit holes and like, and it's like, it becomes very interesting and it's all very important, but the minutia of the details is like so hard to express to people in a soundbite. And I've been trying to explain to people about like what's going to likely be on the ballot in December and, um, and like what it means. And, and sometimes I'm like, okay, but stay with me here, <laughs> you know? Um, Cause I'm like worried <laughs> people's eyes are glassing over, but trust me, my eyes are not glassing over. And I really appreciate you kind of breaking that down. And I'm like, if I wish I could vote in Baton Rouge, I wish I could vote for you because um, you definitely sound like you have a handle on this thing. That's really hard to have a handle on, or you are working on having a handle on it. And that's like, ideally what we, we should have from our elected officials as, as people who either understand all these rabbit holes and the minutia of it or are willing to to begin that process of understanding it and helping the layperson understand it. There's some issues where I do think I have a better understanding than others because of all this advocacy work I've done and the research and the time I've invested. Honestly, I don't think people really fully appreciate how much time I invested in researching education issues, you know, like they, because they don't see it. I, I wasn't employed. I wasn't paid to do it. I don't have a title behind my name. I do a lot of research on that. And and in terms of the city, though, it it can be intimidating. Like I can understand why people are averse to run, right? Because they don't know if they have the resources to discover the information or even people to talk to about it, right? Like, you know, other professionals and fields so that they can gather information from a variety of sources and then make an informed decision. And so that's where what I think is interesting is that the English background has really informs the work that that type of research, right, that understanding of what it takes to arrive at an informed position is central um, to being able to, I think, be a responsible elected position. And it takes a lot of time. And we're not really giving our elected officials the opportunity to do that work well. I mean, I I don't know about your city council in New Orleans at this point, but in Baton Rouge, it's considered a part-time position. Mm. And that means that the people who are elected to the council certainly have to be, have another job. They can't live on what they pay city council members very well. And, and then that means that if they have another job, then they don't have time to do the research themselves. It means that they end up being dependent upon lobbyists from business and industry to make their decisions about policy that's affecting, you know, more than just business and industry. It's affecting the community as a whole. And so the way in which narratives get shaped and manipulated is so key to being able to navigate all of those competing interests. 
Yeah, that's um, that's a really good instinct. And I think um, we briefly talked about money and politics when we were supposed to be talking about another topic, me and my my main podcasting partner, Jody. And I was like, so what, where does lobbyists fit in all of this? And what you, you kind of brought to light there really does make a difference, whether or not it's a well-paid position for the people doing the work so that they actually have the time and the space or, you know, they can build their own staffs to support them versus having to rely on um, someone just telling them, you know, and, and does that person have an agenda and do they have enough time to investigate that agenda before they make an, a decision? And um, that's that's key. That's key. And that's something that a lot of us don't think about. So, you know what, I'm really interested, if I could um, ask you the two the two questions that I like to ask everyone, we kind of know how you got from 2010-ish to here to now, but um, what do you remember about learning civics in school when you were growing up, when, when you were, were you in elementary school or middle school, people seemed to learn it at different times? I think the official civics class was in high school, and I, I remember the class, but I, I don't remember much about it. I think it was... It, 10th or 11th grade, but that is even a little fuzzy. But what was more, I think, critical was an after-school club, an extracurricular activity. We had a high-why club, which was like a youth legislature. And I got involved with that and loved it, you know, really enjoyed it. I did it my junior and senior years, I think. And so it was the whole youth legislature where, you know, you, everybody gets assigned a position or you, you know, or elected. I can't remember if we elected them, but I, you know, the first year I was a representative in the house. The next year I was in the Senate. You introduced a bill that went through committee. You know, we came up to Baton Rouge and, and had a, a state legislature, you know, with other schools and everything else and, and enacted the process. And I think that to me was certainly more informative than I don't really remember anything from civics class meaningful, you know what I mean? But being engaged in that activity was much more illuminating. Now, my mother was always interested in political issues. So there was always sort of discussion and things like that going on in the house and and, and also always a critical, critical examination of text. There was always a questioning of why was something in the paper? Why was a story told a certain way? Who was going to benefit from it being told that way? That I was born and raised with that kind of understanding and outlook. But in terms of understanding, you know, or getting involved in civics and how our government works, that's probably where I got most of my education from. And I I even went to a national event, you know, where high school students gathered in North Carolina and they did the federal version. And I did that as well. Uh, That was a little bit wasn't quite as much fun because I think it was much bigger. And so I didn't get to speak on bills as often, you know, but it was still... That was where I really got the most out of it. That sounds like a fantastic education and how the civics process works, uh, how American government works. I kind of feel like we need to like make that consistent across all of U.S. You know, uh, education that we all get to sort of participate in a version of how American government works, so that everyone has a better understanding. I'm really jealous. Is this, can you tell how jealous I am that you had this experience? I'm like, I want that experience in my his, in my childhood. Well, and you also kind of touched upon something else that I, I sometimes ask as a follow-up about um, the sort of family education that you might have received in civics. And, and so it sounds like you just had like above and beyond like a fantastic education all around in civics. And and I'm, I'm very excited for you, especially cons- considering that you're a candidate who's running for an elected position, that you have such a strong foundation in that and a little jealous. So the, the next question that I, I ask everyone is, what do you remember about the first time that you voted? 
I turned 18 in 1986, and so it must have been the 1988 election, but I don't remember much about that. I really don't. I don't remember voting the first time. What I remember, you know, the first voting experiences is that I went with my parents when they voted. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the day when, like, the machines were generally put in someone's garage in the neighborhood. Oh, And so, yeah, we would walk a block and a half over. But it was always like a family event when it was time to go vote. My parents would take me and I'd go with them when they went to go vote. Yeah, I remember the old machines with, you know, the little turn down handles and everything. And it was at, you know, someone's carport. (laughs) And so I remember that more than I remember my first time voting. The first election where I remember their sort of being memorable, and and there's some hazy memory to this too, was probably more along the lines, the um, Duke Romer Edwards election, Mm because I was in New Orleans at that time. And what I remember about that was showing up to vote in the primary and discovering that I had been purged from the rolls and then (laughs) making it a point to vote in the follow-up. And so um, that was my first, yeah, experience where I sort of kind of remember making an effort to go vote myself as an adult, as opposed to going with my parents. Wow. So, so you were disenfranchised. You weren't allowed to vote because you, you, you couldn't get registered on the day, right? If you'd already been purged. Right. And so I think that's what happened. It, it must have been, I, I don't even remember the year at this point in time, but I'm assuming that I moved being a young adult that I was, and I didn't update my, my address. And so um, day late, dollar short, I remembered, oh my goodness, I have to go vote. And so I went to my old polling location and discovered that I was no longer uh, attached to it. So I had to scramble and then, you know, you could update for the second election. And I did. Yeah. Wow. I got to vote against David Duke. Yeah. <laughs> That's an important one. So, and then the, the question that one of my podcasting partners, Noel asked that I, I've stolen from her from some of my interviews, cause I think it's a fantastic question kind of has already been answered, I think by, by some of the things that you've spoken about, but I'd love to see you speak to it directly. Um, what does being a good citizen look like to you? For me personally, or for, you know, what I think all good citizens should be? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I say maybe both, you know, which, what do you do as a, as a, as a personally to be a good citizen? And is, does that differ at all from what you think all all people should do as good citizens? Well, you know, what I think about being a good citizen is, is to certainly try to help our country live up to the, the ideals set forth in the constitution. And that means for me, understanding that criticizing your country is necessary if you want it to become better and to live up to those ideals. You know, I I know that's a big debate right now, right? It always has been, really. There's always been the love it or leave it attitude in the United States. But I certainly recognize that expecting our government to do better is part of being a good citizen, right? Mm -hmm. For me personally, it gets, I feel like I can do more based upon the privilege I enjoy now, in my life. I had always imagined that I'd have my own profession, right? That I I did not work hard to get my undergraduate degree. I waited my way, waited tables to work my way through school and, you know, went and got a graduate degree. And I'd always imagined, you know, having a, um, my own career. So uh, on the one hand, quitting my job was agonizing for me. But on the other hand, I know very few people have the privilege to say, okay, uh, I'm going to give up this employment. But that also meant that, you know, there was more expected of me. I had the privilege of doing more. I could do more. I could drop the kids off at school and drive down to the Capitol and sit around all day in a, in a committee meeting, you know, waiting to, to speak 
on an issue because I didn't have to go down to get a job. And, and that was one of the things that really fired me up to get involved because I remember what it was like when there would be an issue that I would be upset by and that I'd want to take action on. But quite frankly, I, I had to get to work. I had too much to do. It was hard enough to try to follow the issue in the newspapers, much less to call up your representative and speak with any kind of authority or knowledge. You know, I, I remember how powerless I felt being unable to engage in the process. And I understand how, you know, just surviving stymies our ability to be engaged in that process. So that was one of the things that really drove me to go down to the Capitol was I, I recognized that I had, I had the ability to do that. You know, if I wasn't going to do that, who was going to do that? And so for me, being a good citizen, that is what has been driving me for the whole eight years. I will tell you that the, there has been many times where I'm like, okay, when I do this, then there's going to be no possibility for me to be useful in this fight anymore. I will have burned a bridge. I will have angered too many people. I, I'll be done. And then something else will happen. And I'll be like, well, I think I could do that. Let me try that and see if it works. <laughs> and I just keep trying. I just, when there's an opportunity where I feel like maybe I can exert some good, I'll give it a whirl and see if it works. I'll do my best to try to raise awareness change the narrative, get us just one step clo closer, address an inequity or, and it's, that's how I ended up running. You know, that's how I ended up running for office. I never thought I would. And, and here I am. So yeah, read the second part of our, our listener's email. All right. So his second point is I think that there have been missed opportunities where some of the topics and, event and events discussed could have led to good discussions of civic slash government, but instead politics became the focus. An example would be from episode three. Jadi mentions that in 2016, Mitch McConnell and the Republican-controlled Senate, quote, didn't even allow the president to nominate, unquote, Merrick Garland to replace Scalia on the Supreme Court. Technically, Obama did, in fact, nominate Merrick Garland on March 16, 2016, in a formal Rose Garden ceremony. What McConnell and the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee did was to refuse to conduct hearings, which would lead to a vote by the full Senate to confirm or not. Going back to a more civics-focused discussion, I would argue that President Obama fulfilled his duty under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution by nominating Garland, but advice and consent of the Senate is required for confirmation. I would also argue that the Senate fulfilled its constitutional duty, albeit not acting on the nomination. Going back to episode three, Jadi said that, quote, Republicans controlled the Senate. They could have easily looked at Merrick Garland and said, nah, we're good, and it would have been completely constitutional, unquote. I would argue that this is precisely what McConnell and the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee did by not allowing for hearings. I think that an opportunity was missed to discuss different perspectives on the interpretation of, of the constitutional duties of the executive and legislative branches in judicial appointments and instead focus more on the politics surrounding the event. Since it's hard to separate the politics out of many of the topics covered, I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like the discussions could have been a bit less politically focused. Good luck, and I look forward to future episodes. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I think that um, 
because we are sort of lay citizens, like you're, you're a lot more informed than I am uh, and generally have a lot more sort of background on these things as both somebody who has a, a legal background and just somebody who's been paying attention, whereas I haven't. I think that's part of the thing. Like I have to do a lot of research in order to try to have these civic conversations with you. And that's something that I definitely want to commit to moving forward because I'm enjoying kind of nerding out and like reading about American history and civics and like seeing why things were set up the way that they were and how they like, you know, are no longer sort of serving us. Um, I think in a way, I'm not, I'm not trying to blame myself here or anything like that, but I think that because we're not professionals, because we're not, you know, experts, sometimes it is easy to miss these opportunities to, you know, to talk about these very fine details of like constitutional sort of procedure and law. Right. Um, Yeah. I think as we get more experience, we might get better at that because yeah, it is easy to skip over some things you might've wanted to say. And then after the fact, think, oh, I should have said this or, (laughs) you know, but going back to what the listener said, well, the first thing is if I said didn't even allow the president to nominate Merrick Garland, I misspoke and I apologize. <laughs> that was that was not what I meant to say. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing this kind of off the cuff, off the top of our heads. So uh, yeah. that was a misspeak. But in terms of his greater point, which is the president fulfilled his duties and then the Senate fulfilled their duty by not holding judiciary committee hearings you know what? I can't even really argue that. The Constitution does not uh, expressly state what advise and consent means. So since like 18 something or another, every Supreme Court nominee has gone in front of the Judiciary Committee except for seven of them. And those seven all were um, eventually on the Supreme Court, either were currently on the Supreme Court and were trying to be nominated for the for the chief justice position or they eventually became supreme court justices the listener is correct in that my stance that what mcconnell did was unconstitutional is incorrect um the constitution doesn't specify what advise and consent means so what he did can't necessarily be called unconstitutional um i still it's not fair yeah, right. I was going to say, I still think it is norm breaking. I, I still think it undermines the intent of the, those clauses, the nomination and the advice and consent clause. And I think it's wrong, but the, the listener is correct. It's, it's not unconstitutional. So I'm John Paul Bourgeois. I go by John. That's fine. And I'm a U.S. Senate candidate for Louisiana. It's so intriguing because um, as I, if I'm right, I think you're a librarian, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Public health librarian. Yep. <laughs> so you have an ILS, um, but you're not a lawyer, right? I have an MLIS, yes. Oh, sorry. But you don't have like a legal background, right? Oh, God, no. <laughs> it's just no. Like, no offense taken. No offense taken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, MLIS and an MPH. Well, um, MPH is a master's of public health, right? Yeah. So I, I got that in uh, in epidemiology at Tulane. So I find it intriguing that as um, as a Senate candidate, you're like, you know, what? I don't have a legal background, which is like what almost every other person running for you know public office has. But I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. So like, what was the origin of this for you? Like, what made you decide to run for Senate? Well, it began really in, in 2014, whenever um, 
I was just in Louisiana and I was, like everyone else, inundated with these Bill Cassidy ads against Mary Landrew and her voting record. And uh, now that he really has a record of his own, I said, you know what, Uh, I've been pondering this because after 2016, um, I I took stock and I looked around and everyone just seemed really angry um, and trying to cope with stress. So uh, at that time, about nine months after the election, our first daughter was born. Uh, so my wife and I joke that she was our election anxiety baby. Um, <laughs> and after the election, early 2017, I got involved. Um, my wife and I uh, started going back to church. I became an election commissioner. I joined a running group and a writing group. And uh, then once COVID hit and our second daughter was born, but none of our family could be there. Um, I, I couldn't even leave the hospital uh, once I went in because then I wouldn't be able to be there for the birth. I decided, you know, this this has been so poorly mismanaged that if a public health librarian isn't a qualified candidate at this point in time, they never will be. So I decided, you know, just just do it. I mean, I, I work from home right now. I'm, I'm very privileged in that. So I have time to put in my 40 hours throughout the entire week, and then I uh, campaign on the side where I can. You've got a very compelling background you know, the spouse of a teacher and also your public health and librarianship seems like really great qualifications to me, actually, for public service. Um, But what I'm wondering is, is like, especially with like, you know, we hear over and over and over again, that how expensive it is to run a campaign and to like to get the eyeballs that you need for people to know about you. Like, what do you think your odds are? Like, do you think you've got pretty good chances because you don't have the money that other players have or the name recognition? I think that there are a couple things that are actually playing in my favor. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, uh, having a name like John Paul Bourgeois in a heavily Catholic state, uh, I really need to, to thank my dad for that one. Uh, and the fact that I was born during uh, the papacy of John Paul II. And then a lot of people I've spoken to about my campaign, they ask me what party I am. And I say, I'm not a party. And they almost breathe a sigh of relief because they don't want to have that argument again. Mm-hmm. And then another aspect is uh, Bill Cassidy's done such a terrible, hypocritical job that there are a lot of Republican defectors. And then on the Democratic side, you know, there are, what, six or seven Democratic candidates all vying for the same pool. So am I realistic? Absolutely. My wife's family is good friends with a lot of politicians, especially on the North Shore. And I spoke to them about this pursuit of office and they're very sweet. And I told them about my fundraising goals and not actively fundraising. And they said, well, you need to run the campaign that you want to run, which is their way of saying, oh, you naive, stupid thing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think there are a couple of things working for me, but you know, I I know my chances. That's why I have a hundred dollars left in the bank right now. And, uh, I plan on saving that for my for my victory party. Is how I put it on my FEC file in my paperwork. Hey, make That's- sure you invite us. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, um, Jody and I were just we just had a session where like we're researching our ballot. That's part of what we're doing in the next couple of episodes. And um, I was really intrigued because there are a couple of Democrats. There's of course Republicans. There's a Libertarian on the ticket, and then there's like a couple of Independents, and then there's several No parties. And so. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in like, what's the difference, at least in your mind, between no party and independent? 
So from a technical standpoint, there are five registered parties in Louisiana. So you have Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green, and Independent. So in Louisiana, Independent is a party. So whenever people say to me, oh, you're running as an Independent, I always say, no, I'm running as no party for that for that specific reason. In my mind, what's the difference? Um, I don't know. And I just don't like aligning myself with any specific ideology. Because once you label yourself as part of this think group, then you, you really limit what your platform can be in order to adhere to the to the ideas of that of that group for example i mean the incumbent you know he was a doctor who treated the uninsured in louisiana but yet he's consistently voted against protecting pre-existing conditions and voted against uh the aca every opportunity that he got and i think that's more a reflection of his a political party than necessarily what he really feels. So I, that's why I, I went with no party. That's interesting. And I know that you've, you've been listening to the podcast while vacuuming, which I love that image. Um, so you probably will not be surprised by these questions. Uh, the first one is, is, can you tell us something about like your, your civic education? Like, do you remember taking civics in school? You did you go to you went to school in Louisiana, right? I did. Yeah. So I am entirely educated in Louisiana, a product of public school, except for Tulane. Yeah, so I took civics and economics whenever I was a sophomore at DeRitter High School in Beauregard Parish. Do you have any strong memories from that class? Do you think it prepared you to be an active citizen? Oh, God, no. No, absolutely not. No, because it's, it's very idealistic, too. It's This is the way it's set up, and it's not nuanced at all. I think probably American history and taking that uh, at LSMSA in Natchitoches was a better experience about civic engagement and responsibility than taking a civics class. Uh, it, it just wasn't in-depth enough. It was very cut and dry, and this is how things are supposed to work. But, you know, as we're seeing right now, that's not really not how they normally work. Yeah, you're really hitting a lot of the same points that, like, a lot of us sort of are feeling about our civic background and education. So do, what do you remember about the first time you voted? It, it could be a presidential election or a local election. Uh, so I actually remember it very distinctly because it was the 2008 campaign when I uh, I voted for Obama the first time around. Mm -hmm. And I was just so excited to be voting because I had missed the Kerry Bush election by a year. Oh. Um I just was over the moon and it seemed like change. And I had some very conservative relatives who I would hear spouting off uh, McCain is the same. So I knew that even they desired for something different. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of rubbed it in my dad's face. I, I called him after I voted and, and told him, I just canceled out your vote. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was not happy about that, but you know, at, at least I was engaged. Um, so yeah, that was, Absolutely the first time. It was in Ruston, Louisiana, because I was doing undergrad at Tech, and um, I, had, I had never voted before, and it was strange, and someone handed me a piece of paper and asked me to fill it out, and, you know, I didn't have, like, an address. Really, well, I had a mailing address, but, you know, not a permanent address in, in Ruston, so it was, it was very bizarre. So were you interested in like politics and civics before deciding to run? Like, or what got you sort of invested? What was your, how did you educate yourself about politics? The 2016 election was really a, a watershed moment for me. And I got deeply involved in, well, I say deeply involved, but really just amounted 
to listening to podcasts. Um, so I subscribe to like all the NPR political podcasts, like Left, Right, and Center. Uh, even Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was doing pretty good coverage at the time. Uh, oh, wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> so then after after Hillary lost, I was like, oh, God, I just had to withdraw for a little while and think like, how, like, what does this mean? How can we get it absolutely so wrong? And then whenever the current administration was inaugurated and we get a lot of the bans and everything, I knew that I had to be a lot more active. So that's when I became an election commissioner and am currently an election commissioner in charge, but I, I can't serve during this election because I'm on the ballot. Um, but really it was the 2016 and then the whiplash from that. So, you know, becoming an ACLU member and getting my New York Times subscription and all those sorts of very liberal things. I want to kind of cede some of my time to Jody because I know Jody's got questions about and reached out to you about your platform. Yeah. Right. So I, um, as Emily said earlier, we were going through the ballot and actually doing research to figure out, uh, you know, about the candidates and potentially who we would vote for. And I came across your website. I asked you a number of questions, um, and I guess I want to delve deeper into some of your answers. Mm hmm. Um, and the first question I'm going to ask might blow this whole podcast up, <laughs> but oh um, no, Jenny, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so you said pro-life versus pro-choice was a false dichotomy, and it yes. doesn't represent your stance on abortion. Can you explain why you feel it's a false dichotomy and what more accurately reflects your stance? Yeah. So whenever I write on my website that um, all life is sacred and all life deserves protection. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic and Methodist because my, my parents were different denominations and couldn't decide which one we would go to. So we went to both. And then my wife was raised Episcopalian. And that's what we raise our daughters in because in that faith tradition, everybody is welcome and all means all. So whenever I say all life is sacred, I feel like the pro-life movement, especially in its current manifestation, draws a really sharp distinction at only fetuses matter, but even they're not consistent in that because the EPA administrator ruled to remove any limitations on chemicals that can cause uh, fetal deformations and abnormalities. So we have this administration that says that it's pro-life, that it's anti-abortion, but yet they enact policies that are clearly against that in the strictest context of what they could mean. Yes! <laughs> so I, so that's just the one example. And then, uh, you know, in Louisiana in 2019, there were 8,400 abortions performed. However, if you look at our low birth weights in this state in 2018, it was like 6,000 kids. Okay, so we have 6,000 kids who are at greater risk because they may not have gotten the appropriate care because it wasn't affordable whenever they were in utero. And yet we have these rollbacks of ACA. How is that pro-life? Or we have cuts to the Medicaid expansion that you know, has insured an additional half a million people. How is that pro-life? We're cutting the Social Security net. How is that pro-life? All these things that clearly indicate that the pro-life party is in fact not for everyone. They don't care about the well-being of everyone. So I don't feel like that accurately reflects my position because to them, pro-life is 
just anti-abortion. And really, I, I think it needs to be a much more expansive definition. If we're going to say that we're pro-life, then you know what? Be pro-life. Support these positions. It, it should, yeah. So. So then what? What about pro-choice does not represent you? So I feel like pro-choice doesn't represent me because there are other aspects of the democratic platform that, that I don't agree with. I'm pretty conservative with like gun ownership. You know, I, I have no qualms about that. I don't want to align myself with pro-choice because it doesn't you know reflect my entire platform. Once you allocate yourself to pro-life or pro-choice, then your entire platform splits again along those party lines. And I'm, I'm not interested in playing that. I think people are tired of that. And I am quite frankly exhausted of it. You know, you know what I appreciate about your answer and about you talking about the false dichotomy of it is you're right. Because it's like, if, if we have like sort of consistent um, quality healthcare you know, and we just allow people to sort of like, you know, take care of themselves just in general, I think that that really actually addresses like our concerns about abortion. People being women or people with uteruses tend to make, you know, the best decisions for themselves, you know, with the resources that they have. So if if we support people who have uteruses and the decisions that they're making for their bodies and for their lives, then, um, then probably as we've seen, the abortion rates will just naturally go down. Well, yeah, we saw that during the uh, during the Obama administration and during the Clinton administration, uh, they declined at sharper levels than during Republican administrations. Right. Today is actually the first day of early voting. It in Louisiana. is. Yes. Well, what is your voting plan if you're not sure if you're going to mail in your ballot? Do you think you might vote early? I am absolutely going to vote early. Yeah, I, I love voting early. Um, on the West Bank, the lines have usually been long for presidential uh, elections. So uh, I think in 2016, I voted in person on the day of because for work, I think I can get up to like four hours off as civil leave to vote. Mm -hmm. But I I do plan on early voting and then depending on what's happening on uh, on election day, because I think my wife has to work if she's not still in quarantine um, and the kids probably still have to go to daycare. Are you in favor of making election day a federal holiday? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I'm actually in favor of moving election day or maybe having like a week long election day, you know, just something to to make it a lot easier. You know, if maybe we did away with election day and just had prolonged early voting, I'd I'd be okay with that, too, because, you know, these election commissioners, whenever I work the polls, I am the youngest by probably two or three decades. Yeah, it's it's pretty surprising. And you know, you, you have elderly people who are going in to vote. And, you know, we had an incident at one of my polling stations where uh, it was raining that day and we were in a garage for a fire department and the cement got wet and he, he slipped and fell and busted his head. Oh, uh, no. oh yeah. So, so what do you do then? Fortunately, it was not a high traffic election day. I think turnout that day was maybe like 3%. So he was able to get the care he needed. An ambulance came and took care of him. But yeah, it's... Did he get a chance to vote? He did. Yes, he did. Yes, absolutely. Sorry to like, that was a weird follow-up question, but you already said he was okay. So I was like, did he vote? (laughs) Yeah, no, he he voted. Yeah. Oh, that's great. 
You said that you're not in favor of raising the minimum wage as a means of combating systemic poverty. You said that instead you would like to address affordable housing, health care, and social mobility by developing more marketable skills and low-income earners. Yes. Okay. Um, so can you explain why you're not in favor of raising the minimum wage and how you foresee your proposals reducing poverty? Sure. So the... First question, uh, why I'm not in favor of raising the minimum wage is because if we raise the minimum wage, then the market will adjust and prices will rise to meet that. Corporations will know that uh, low-income earners have more income and will raise prices to take advantage of that new source of income. So really what it would do is it would not improve the quality of life for lower socioeconomic statuses, but it would really crunch the middle class because everyone else would also be paying those subsequently higher prices for common day goods. So uh, the cost of groceries would rise because the cost of business would rise. Utilities would become more expensive. It would be a cascading upward effect. So that's why I'm not in favor of it. All right. And you, you talked about addressing healthcare. What does that look like to you? So my, my main thing is universal preventative care. And I think from an epidemiological standpoint, as a public health official, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of treatment. Uh, so if we can intercept health conditions before they become major issues, like, you know, if you're overweight, if we can address that become, before it becomes obesity, and then before obesity becomes diabetes and chronic heart failure and you know, mobility issues resulting from that, then it's really about treating the issue before it becomes a much larger issue. And really that goes back to the idea of being all life is sacred. You know, we need to provide universal neonatal care, uh, going through being supportive for two childbirths. I, that's an expensive and time-consuming process. So by making it more accessible, we treat some of those long-term issues by preventing them. And I think that's that's the first step. As somebody who's who doesn't have like a political background, like how do you envision going into the Senate and sort of building or encouraging bipartisanship amongst a group of people that have been resistant to that? Yeah. So I think that the the two parties really aren't that far apart. I think that you know, it's just vilification of the other people in order to strengthen your own position so that you know if you want to be friends with someone have a shared enemy i think is what is that what someone said I, I was listening to your postal podcast and i think that's what the the burlesque dancers yeah that's what the burlesque dancer said yes 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 yeah so i think she's absolutely right about that and that applies to the current political situation and what we've seen with the tax cuts from 2017 is that those in the middle actually hold a lot of sway because if you don't go into there as I'm a solid R or I'm a solid D, but I can negotiate for the betterment of my constituents, then that's the way I think it should be done anyway. I hate this loyalty to one party or the other because really your constituents elected you, not not the party. We were talking earlier about how there is an incumbent who's like got a name recognition, although a lot of people are mad at him. And there's 15 people in this field. Have you received any sort of like negative 
press like were there, or like negative ads or are they just not paying attention to you? Oh my gosh. No, I am such small fish. Are you kidding? Uh, I was looking over the uh, FEC filings yesterday because I contacted the FEC about you know, should I submit a filing or what should I do? And they said, you can just submit a, a form saying that you didn't make enough to really worry about. And, you know, there are other people in this race who I think Bill Cassidy has like 9,000, no, $9 million on hand or something like that. So I'm such small fries that, that no one. Actually, I think that's actually an advantage, though, because <laughs> to not have them like smearing your name like that, then and hopefully we can get the word out about that you have really sane and thought through, you know, like policy ideas and, and, and a platform and all that stuff. So maybe you can kind of like, they can go after each other. It's like the T-Rex and the um, Velociraptor in Jurassic Park and you just kind of like run through them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like that idea. Uh, I was I was joking with my wife about, you know, I'll make my concession speech at 7.30 on uh, November 3rd before the, the polls even close. And she's like, oh, I, would, I would kind of pump the brakes on that idea, John. You don't know how things are going to shake out. Yeah, don't concede before you've lost. <laughs> Thank you so thanks. much. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on, John. Thanks for responding to my email, and thanks for coming on to the podcast. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I mean, you know, it's it's always great to reach out, and now I have a new podcast that I can listen to, so it's great. Thank you to our listener for writing in um, with your thoughts and following up. Um, our listener actually has been engaging in a conversation with us that I'm really enjoying. Even though it's not necessarily on air, we are having great conversations. And I want to do to share one more thing that the listener shared with us because I asked them about um, the confirmation hearing, whether or not they were watching it. And the listener said... I have not had a chance to watch more of the much of the hearings, but have been impressed with what I have seen of Judge Barrett and how she has handled the process. It has been very different from the last couple of SCOTUS hearings. I'm not sure that there is anything or anyone who could convince me to be questioned for four days by a Senate committee, let alone all of the public scrutiny, which uh, he agreed. And then it is interesting that it seems both sides have used much of their time to try and score political points instead of asking questions. I guess because maybe they feel that the vote is already decided and probably was decided when she was nominated. Not sure anyone in the Senate has changed their mind in the last few weeks again politics. And that made me think of you um, because that's kind of a point that you made is that sort of everyone seems to kind of know what they're going to do before the hearings and everyone just sort of like, you know. I always equate politics to professional wrestling. Where, <laughs> where it's like they get up there and they make these speeches and I'm going to kick his but then when they, get, when they get into the ring, it's all scripted. You know, it's fake. We already know ahead of time who's going to win. You know, it's like, it's a show. Yeah, but you know what? I think that's the thing is I think that the American people are getting really frustrated with the show of it all. There were moments during the hearings where they kind of joked around with each other and you and you did get the sense and it was it was mostly partisan, unfortunately, but there was some cross cross partisan sort of joking um, back and forth. They do spend a lot of time together and you would ideally want them to be able to like see each other as human beings and like be friendly, even if they don't agree with each other all of the time. But because it was like sort of in such a heated climate, it feels like people's lives are hanging on the decision that they're about to make. I think that the joking and the ribbing with each other and like sort of the in jokes sort of like probably rubbed a lot of people like me the wrong way. And it was kind of like, you know, why? <laughs> like, why are you guys joking with each other right now? We're all listening. We're all watching what you're doing. 
and you're not listening to us and we all want you to be doing something else instead of this right now. And to be completely honest with you, like I'm scared of like what, you know, Judge Barrett's going to do on the Supreme Court and, and how unbalanced the Supreme Court's about to be. I genuinely am scared of that. But the thing I'm most frustrated with is just that this did not need to happen right now. Like they would still have time to do this after the election, but it's clearly an agenda of theirs to get her in on the Supreme Court before the election because they think that the Supreme Court will have to decide the president, you know, the presidential election. And that's that's even more terrifying than anything else she could be doing in the rest of her tenure as a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I disagree with you on that, but I think we already talked about that. We don't need to go into that again. <laughs> yeah. You know, the president won the election. The president gets to nominate. We should have won the election. So we didn't. The president but we gets did. to nominate. No, but we didn't. We did not win. <laughs> the rules don't say whoever has the majority of the vote. That's not the rules. The rule says whoever gets the most electoral points, or I not know. the most points, but, you know, X number of, I forget what it is, two. 43, whatever the number is, you know, whoever gets that many points wins the election. But they're stupid rules and they need to go. And then also right. like, well, they entered the, they entered the race under those rules. You can't change it after the fact because your, your side you. didn't win. I you know? hear you, but this just goes down to like, you know, the sort of game theory of politics. And I think a lot of us are getting really sick of sort of like the analogies and, and the, the theory of like, this is all a game and my side, your side, the rules, you enter into the game under these, you know, under these rules, you can't change them. I think a lot of us are just getting really exhausted by that because we're literally having to watch over and over and over again. We're having to watch these sort of like rigged procedures that like, it's a slow motion car crash happening in our democracy right now. And supposedly there's nothing we can do against it, even though we can all see it happening because the rules are what the rules are. And it's just like, oh, but at what point do we just say enough of this? Like the rules are not fair. The rules have been abused, you know, and, and then people have been finding loopholes in order to abuse the rules in the process. And it's this is not our democracy. Our democracy isn't, you know, letting a president put somebody on the Supreme Court who will then theoretically award him the presidency, you know, if it, if it becomes uh, questioned or, or debated and goes to the Supreme Court, you know? Yeah. Well, anyways, I, I mean, we yeah. need to do our part as citizens. So yeah, as we, as we were talking with John about, yeah, absolutely. We all need to be more active, engaged citizens so that we don't have to continue to watch these slow motion car crashes mm -hmm. in our democracy. Wow, that was such a pleasant note to end on. You got a joke? <laughs> a joke. Donald Trump. Oh, that, that is a joke. Not a very funny one. <laughs> I'm even more depressed than I was a minute ago. Thanks a lot, Jody. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for listening, as always. And if you'd like to help us keep the lights on, our Patreon link is in the show notes.